I'd like to start out with a brief story. About four years ago, in August of 2011, I had to have some surgery, and I had never been in the hospital before, never had surgery before, and I was really nervous, like big-time nervous. Um, just the backstory is I had found, uh, I guess you would call it a lump in my throat. I kind of thought it was swollen glands, so I go to patient first, and they, th that's not swollen glands, I think that's your thyroid. So he said, you probably should go see an endocrinologist who deals with that. So I made an appointment. I got a referral uh, and made an appointment, went to see him. And sure enough, after some blood work and things, they determined that my thyroid had some problems. And uh, not out of the ordinary because so did my mom and my dad. They, you know, did a biopsy and then watched it for about a year and a half. And uh, thankfully it was benign, but because it continued to grow, they said, based on your family history, it should probably be removed. And so, you know, that's near your vocal cords. And as a preacher, I was very, very anxious about having surgery in that area. But we, you had to do it, so I, you know, got it scheduled. And, and then... At our former church, as I was greeting families during vacation Bible school, one of our church members, Andy, came up to me and said, I've got your back. I'm like, what? He said, I've got your back. What do you mean? He says, I saw you on the schedule. I'm like, what schedule? He's like, at St. Mary's. I'm like, how'd you know? I'm a nurse anesthetist, if I said that right. The one who would be responsible for putting me under for the whole surgery. And at that moment, I felt God just give me this peace. Because I knew him. I trusted him. And he told me, your doc's really good. Don't worry. And I went into the surgery, I was still nervous, but much less anxious than I would have been had I not had that God moment where someone I trusted told me that everything was going to be okay. What is trust? You've heard some definitions on the video clip that might help. Webster's defines trust as the belief that something or someone is reliable, good, honest, and effective. To trust is to rely on their character, their ability, their strength, or, or the truth of someone or something. Uh, it's, it's one in which confidence is placed. The origin of the word trust comes from an old English word that means faithful or true. A perfect example for us of trust is in a newborn baby. A newborn baby has to totally and completely rely on a parent or a caregiver to provide, to nurture, to cuddle, to sing to her, to feed her, to provide her a safe place. And when that happens, trust in the newborn is beginning immediately 
And that child is learning over a period of time what trust is. And until that trust is broken in some way, uh, that that child will grow up with a a very trusting and, and understanding heart. There's an immediate sense of confidence even when that little baby cannot in any way articulate verbally what confidence is. They just they just know it. And I'm convinced that trust is the linchpin of families and marriages, of teams and businesses, congregations and other organizational systems. If you and I don't have trust, then what do we have? If you're a sports fan, you probably have followed Johnny Manziel, Johnny Football, who was a star quarterback for Texas A&M and now is with the Cleveland Browns. And in, in his uh, first year of football, made a lot of mistakes, and one of his teammates said he lost the trust of the locker room. He lost the trust of the locker room and said it's going to take a lot for him to gain that back. And he's slowly doing that, still on the team as the backup, but he is earning that trust back. But once trust is broken, it's very difficult to to earn it back. You would agree. I remember some years ago, a husband who came to me and he said, Bob, I don't know how to tell you this, but I have not been faithful to my wife. What do I do? And I looked at him and I said, Be prepared for 18 to 24 months of questioning because it's going to take that long for her to trust you again. Now, if you're both in it, they were both believers, if you're both in it, if you you work hard and go through some good pastoral Christian counseling, you, you can have a stronger marriage than it was before. I believe that because I I looked at him and I said, uh, do you believe that God raised His Son, Jesus, from the dead? Absolutely, I believe that. Well, if God raised His Son from the grave, then He can resurrect your marriage. That's what I told him. And his wife, as we worked together, and I'm thankful that their marriage is strong even to this day. And Uh, But I I, I told him that regaining that trust is not easy and it's going to take a long time and you've got to be absolutely vulnerable. You've got to be transparent. Uh, You know, the the cell phone is there, all passcodes, everything is just totally in the open and you have to understand it's going to take some time. Politicians, you've, you've seen those over the years where Someone has breached the trust of the public and it takes a long time for them to regain that. It can be done. And then just yesterday in the paper, you've seen the story about Volkswagen and some of their engineers were um, not acting ethically in their business and it has hurt their reputation. In the article it says, brands are all about trust and it takes years and years to develop. But in the space of 24 hours, Volkswagen has gone from one people who, uh, who could trust to one people don't know what to think about. And I'm not trying to uh, beat up on anybody. I'm just stating what I saw in the news. In, in business, trust can be built over the period of years and then in a matter of 24 hours, it can be turned upside down and then it takes a, a long time and a lot of hard work to regain it. If people have broken your trust, think about this. 
if someone you know or love has broken trust, then it's likely that we might question God's trustworthiness. If, if, if people have hurt us, then sometimes we think, well, if, if I love them and, and they say they love me and God loves me, I wonder if I can trust God. And, and, and that brings us to this message in the series, Misconceptions of God. We're looking at distorted pictures that people have of God. And so often people say, well, if I can't trust this person who I see, how can I trust a God I can't see? If I can't trust him or her, how can I trust this God whom I, I cannot see? And I want uh, us to look at the narrative of Jesus. That's what we're doing every message during this series. We're looking at Jesus because if you want to understand what God is like, uh, we, we look at Jesus. We look at the character and nature of Jesus. And Jesus, the exact imprint of the Father, uh, helps us to see what God is like. One woman told James Bryan Smith, who wrote the book that we're tracking, A Good and Beautiful God, tracking along with this series, one woman said this to him after he taught a, a, a workshop on prayer. She says, quote, I loved all that you taught us today about prayer, but when you started your prayer by calling God Father, you lost me. I had a terrible father, and she says, I cannot think of God as my father. And Smith writes this, the God Jesus reveals would never do anything to harm us. He, is, he, he has no malice or evil intentions. He's completely good. We talked about this last Sunday in our message. And the fact that God, he writes, is all-knowing and all-powerful makes his goodness even better. I can trust God even if things look bleak. It does not matter that God is all-powerful or all-knowing if he is not all-good. If he's not all good, I will never be able to trust God. And then Smith writes, while I felt badly for this woman, not using the word father is not the solution. The problem is when we begin with our understanding of what father means and then project that on God. That's not how it ought to work, he says. When Jesus describes God as father, we have to let Jesus defined what fatherhood means, and then it becomes much more clear to us. And then Smith quotes Karl Barth, the theologian who helps bring some clarity to this. It is not that there is, first of all, human fatherhood, and then a so-called divine fatherhood, but just the reverse. True and proper fatherhood resides in God, and from this fatherhood, we, what, what we know as fatherhood among us is derived. Bart is saying that fatherhood is defined by God and Jesus, not by Adam and his offspring. The solution in this summation portion here, uh, Wright Smith, is not to abandon the term father, as we said earlier, our father in heaven, hallowed be thy name but to let Jesus define what that is. So, how does Jesus define fatherhood? Jesus refers to God in, in a very close and intimate way. Abba. Abba. 
This is a term of endearment. This is the Aramaic word, which was Jesus' native tongue. This Aramaic word that means daddy. If that is how Jesus referred to his father in heaven, it gives us a totally new understanding of what fatherhood means. Even when Jesus faced his final hours in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed to God as his Abba Father. This implied the deepest and most trustful reverence, as one scholar states. In Mark 14, 36, we find these words, Jesus praying to his Father in the Garden, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup of suffering from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Mark 14, 36. This leads us to our key thought for today as we seek to make some application. Jesus reveals the nature of God through his relationship with God. He reveals the nature of God through his relationship with God. Out of his abiding relationship with his Father in heaven, Jesus then taught his disciples how to pray. And he says, guys, pray in this way. They question. He says, Jesus, teach us how to pray. Jesus says, this is how, how you are to pray. And he begins to say, our Father in heaven, praise be your holy name. As we unpack these verses in Matthew 6, 9 through 13, we learn more about the God who is completely trustworthy. And if you're taking notes, you can uh, fill these in for your own Bible study this week. The first quality we see that Jesus teaches is that God is near. That God is near. Our Father in heaven, verse 9a, that Jesus is near. God is near. In Jewish thought, heaven when you invoke the name, the a place of heaven, heaven revered to the surrounding atmosphere, everything that was right around you uh, in, the, in the atmosphere above, but also right near you. And it, it implied that God was not far away, that God in heaven was very close. So our Father in heaven, our, our Father, you are right here with us. You are near Often when I visit in the hospital, I will read some verses to the person maybe facing surgery from James chapter 4 and 8 and 9, for example, where James writes, come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. And then verse uh, chapter uh, 4 of Philippians, verse 5, uh, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. God is near. We see that in the Lord's prayer. And then we see Jesus in verse 9b, the second part, saying to us, hallowed be thy name. God is holy. Hallowed means holy or set apart. God is holy. Jesus is teaching that there's not a thing bad about God. That God is pure and perfect and without sin. God is not evil. 
God loves us because God is holy. God is love. And then we see, third, that God is powerful. Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That God is a king like none other. That God is the king of kings. And that God is making his kingdom manifest on earth. That God is powerful. That God is sovereign. And Jesus is acknowledging God's sovereignty as the kingdom of heaven has broken in. And Jesus is teaching a new way of living in the world and a new way of loving in the world. That God is powerful. And then in verse in number 4, in verse 11, we see that God cares for us. That God cares for us. Give us today our what? Our daily bread. God provides all that we need. You heard an example of Christian business owners who have testified uh, to this, that God does provide for our needs. And often, God answers that prayer of others who don't have much through us. That we, we are the way that God provides those needs through the church, which is the hope of the world. God cares for us. Psalm 78 Verses 23 and 24. Yet he gave a command to the skies above and opened the doors of the heavens. He rained down manna for the people to eat and he gave them the grain of heaven. Jesus referring here in the prayer, the Lord's prayer of the daily bread that God gives helps the people to think back about the way that God provided for the Israelites as they were in the wilderness. And he gave them manna, bread from heaven for each day and a double portion for the Sabbath that they would have something to eat when they rested from their work. God is a generous God. God provides for us because He cares for us. And sometimes we struggle. I don't know about you, but sometimes over the years I've struggled in giving because sometimes we have to make decisions about how we're going to allocate resources. Truett Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A, tells this story about a man that had done well in business and was tithing to his church. He earned $100 a week, and he gave $10 in the offering on Sunday. This is some years ago. And then this businessman did well, and his income increased over the years, and he began to find it a challenge to maintain that 10% tithe to his local church. They had a larger mortgage, they had more stuff, cars and material things, and they were struggling with their commitment. So the man went to his pastor, says Truett Cathy, and shared this and said, would you release me from the commitment that I made to the church because I'm not able to fulfill that? And the pastor said, I, as your pastor, cannot release you from a covenant that you made to God. That's not something that I, as a man, can do. But I can pray that perhaps you would have that income that you had before of $100 a week so that you could afford to tithe that $10. And the man didn't know how to respond to that. But it was a challenging statement. 
It's easy, says Truett Cathy, to lose sight of the things that really matter when we have all of the comforts we desire. This is Consecration Sunday here at Huguenot Road. And we're preparing our hearts and minds for the next several months as we do two things. And you see that in your bulletin. You can read it later. As we do two things. One, as we search our hearts to meet the commitments that we made to God this year. And number two, as we seek to prepare our hearts to make commitments to next year's ministry budget as we seek to be faithful to God in the year that is upcoming. For this year, we have a, a graph that you could just see a picture. The bottom graph is, is our goal to this date, and the top bar is where we are, is what we as a congregation has given. And so there's a gap. And so we're praying that, that we would search our hearts and our spirit to see how we might catch up or how we might step up over the next couple of months to help meet the ministry commitments that we as a congregation have made to one another and to our community and the world. So would you, you pray about that?